You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome once again to the Doctor's Lounge, coming to you from the heart of Georgia's 6th Congressional District, which, unless you've been living under a rock, you have heard quite a bit about, probably more than you ever wanted to, about our little neck of the woods here in North Atlanta. Uh, News regarding a just recently resolved major political battle uh, between two candidates uh, fighting to fill the seat vacated by Tom Price uh, as Donald Trump appoints him to the uh, head of HHS. it's a very interesting battle. It's it's over now, and you've if you've been listening to TV, you've heard all sorts of crazy stuff about uh, what's going on here. There, uh, as as the rain continues to fall here in Georgia, uh, if uh, uh, you hear me disappear from the microphone suddenly, it's because I see animals walking in pairs outside my door as the rain continues to fall, or if the house floats away or the floodwaters start to rise. Hopefully, we can avoid all that uh, as we get the show done today. But uh, uh, I'm going to offer you just a couple of thoughts about this race that's just been uh, decided, Karen Handel versus uh, John Ossoff. You've heard everything else politically, and of course, uh, much of this falls outside the bounds of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation as a 501c3. But a couple of comments that I think are are nonpartisan enough to to safely share and stuff that maybe you, you haven't heard before. Um, I think if you were to design an experiment – to test the power of political machines to influence or win or deliver uh, winners in political elections. Uh, I think this race between um, Handel and Ossoff is the experiment that you would design. Why is that? Well, uh, because the political machine that's brought in is from outside. Right. There are no roots in the in the sixth congressional district, which is traditionally a Republican district. Uh, this was folks from California and folks from New England, uh, the National Democratic Party trying to influence this election, encouraged by the statistics you've heard before. This this district barely went for Trump in November, uh, and that maybe it was ripe for the picking to flip, um, as we have no incumbent since Tom Price was appointed to HHS. So it's a perfect experiment. You have no incumbent. You have a very strong machine that is coming completely from outside, completely unfamiliar to the district, and a candidate for the Democrats who is also completely unknown. I had never heard of John Ossoff before this election, and no one else had either. Um, and so it's somebody with – uh, you know, no opinions, no message, no experience. And again, I don't mean to bash the man. Uh, he's only 30 years old, I think, for crying out loud. Nobody that age, certainly not me when I was that age, had enough knowledge of the world uh, to have any kind of vision relevant to joining the United States Congress. Uh, I think he was just too young. He's an empty vessel. He had no choice but to do what other people told him and to say what other people told him to say. Uh, and so you have this empty vessel candidate. Uh, and so he's got no way – to get votes except through the political machine that reaches out to their Democratic constituency and says, vote for this guy because we said so, period. What's he stand for? I don't know, but vote for him. Why? Because we're telling you to. Uh, and so how how powerful can those forces be? And it turns out um, not powerful enough. Um, and I find that rather gratifying, not because the Republican beat the Democrat, 
but because uh, I was very discouraged after the 2012 presidential elections. I, I felt like it was the Democratic political machine that delivered that victory for Obama and the Democrats, and I felt like, gosh, you know, if that's if that's the way it's going to be, then you know, the 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 folks, you know, elections get decided in smoke filled rooms, not at the ballot box. And that was a very depressing thought. So the idea that 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 doesn't work, or at least doesn't work all the time, I, I found to be something that was very gratifying. So that's thought number one. Thought number two about this election, uh, and again, this is probably something you've heard before, nothing very profound or insightful, but I'm tired of political polls. Uh, I'm tired of political polls because they are no longer an objective instrument to measure what's going on. They're no longer the equivalent of you know licking your finger and putting it up to the breeze to figure out which way the wind is blowing. Uh, they have become propaganda tools. Um, if you want to increase voter turnout, you report a poll that uh, – or you create a poll that shows it's neck and neck, and so you'll get turnout on both sides. Um, if you're feeling confident and you want to discourage the other side or intimidate the other side, come out with a poll that says your candidate's winning by a huge number of points. And so if you don't support my candidate, both don't bother coming to the polls because you're going to lose anyway. Polls for this election were neck and neck. Uh, the pundits on the news that I watch were afraid to predict the result, and yet we had – you know, a pretty solid four to five point victory for Karen Handel. Uh, so again, just like November, where things were either too close to call or favoring the Democratic candidate, things turned out very different than the polls predicted. Uh, and and as a result, I'm kind of between November and and this general election in Georgia happening yesterday. I'm getting a little tired of hearing about polls. And if though if 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 poll takers want to remain relevant, they're 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 going to have to do something different than than what they're doing. All right, so enough of that stuff. Um, you know, I had to, to to acknowledge the elephant in the room if you live in the Sixth Congressional District. But let's move on to uh, what the subject of today's show is supposed to be, which is to discuss and review a very exciting meeting uh, put on by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation um, in Washington D.C last week on one of our signature issues, which is certificate of need. And this was a very exciting meeting, I think, combined with the last meeting we had in Dallas on direct primary care. I think we are really, as a group, getting our feet on the ground in terms of how to plan these meetings and deliver something to the folks who rely on us that is very useful and very relevant and worthy of your time and your attention and your financial support. Uh, this meeting took place at the Heritage Foundation last Friday in Washington, D.C. We had as our keynote speaker none other than Newt Gingrich, was a, which was a fantastic uh, event to have and a fantastic person to have leading the discussion uh, with his talk at the end of the day. Uh, so let's just do a little bit of background here. Um, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with certificate of need laws, most of you probably are. But for those of you who are new listeners, let's kind of break this down. Um, imagine that if you wanted to open a business, uh, let, let's say that you wanted to open uh, oh something uh, simple like a, a nail salon, let's say. And there are certificate of need laws for nail salons, I think, in some places. But let's just say you wanted to open something very simple like a nail salon. Uh, imagine if you had to apply to the government for permission. 
to open that nail salon. And in the process of reviewing your application to the government for your nail salon, they actually asked all the other nail salon owners in town if it was okay for you to open a nail salon. Well, what do you think your potential competition is going to say? Well, of course they're going to object. Of course they're going to say no. Of course they're going to say, you know what, there's enough nail salons in town. We don't need another one, which is, of course, what they're going to say because they don't want you competing with them. And it turns out that in healthcare, in 36 out of our 50 states, there are laws in place that do exactly that for healthcare. So if you want to open a radiology facility, if you want to open a surgical center, in some states, well, two, Vermont and Washington, D.C., if you want to open a doctor's office, something that simple. You have to petition the state for permission. As part of the application process, the state will go out and check with your competition. They will always say, no, that is not needed. And so you never get your certificate of need approved. And this turns out to be a distressingly efficient way for hospitals mainly to keep competition out, keep patient volume funneled to them. And to keep prices high. Uh, now, a little bit of history uh, behind this. There was a point uh, back a long time ago in the 70s when the federal government thought this was a good idea. And in 1974, they passed some legislation which, among other things, incentivized states to pass certificate of need laws. And so every uh, 49 out of 50 states did so. Uh, but then it turns out in 1986, the federal government actually figured out rather atypical for any government, the federal government especially, figured out that too much regulation in this particular area was a bad idea. And so the incentives were repealed. Since that time, 14 states out of the 49 that had certificate of need laws have repealed them for the most part. The other 30 sticks have kept those uh, in place. And the problem is is that uh, by the time the, uh, the 36 states kind of wised up potentially as to what was going on, the hospital lobbies and probably the insurance lobbies have kept things so tightly controlled in the state legislators and le- state legislatures that we have been unable, including in a, my home state of Georgia uh, or where I currently live in Georgia, that um, – uh, that it's been unable, despite the obvious logic to the contrary, uh, been unable to repeal certificate of lead law. So the purpose of this meeting was to pool everyone's knowledge, uh, pool everyone's expertise, and come up with a message and a strategy to move this ball forward in states where uh, you know, the walls have been, you know, thickly built and the protections and, 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 and political um, infrastructure is in place to ever keep certificate of need laws from being repealed. And I think this meeting was an important step for our foundation because in the past we, we've held meetings before and we've, we've done the pooling of knowledge and the moral support and, and, and gathered everyone together and, and built enthusiasm and built consensus. Um, but then the next step has always been just a little bit elusive. We've always had to face that question of what now and have been challenged 
uh, to find answers to move the ball forward. And I think at this meeting, we kind of broke through that barrier. Uh, thanks in no small part to having Mr. Gingrich around, the speaker around, to sort of guide uh, you know, what our next step should be and how we should begin thinking about this in a way that actually solves the problem rather than just kind of sitting around the water cooler and saying this is a problem we all agree something's got to be done, but nobody comes up with the something. So uh, you know, to me that is, is a very exciting step. So we're going to spend the rest of the show – um, highlighting that meeting, and I, I think what I'm going to do, because I, I personally don't have the bandwidth to sort of break down every piece of uh, the speaker's talk and, and add commentary and say things, is I'm going to play his talk at, at, at the end of the day almost in its entirety uh, and uh, maybe break it up in places. Uh, and, and that's probably going to take up most of the rest of the hour. Uh, so um, once we get to that point, I think that's what we're going to do. Um, there, were some, uh, the, there was a long list of speakers at the meeting and a lot of really smart people. Uh, I'll give you some summaries of that when we start the uh, next segment here um, in about uh, a couple of minutes. Um, but uh, they, we, the, the folks who spoke gave a, did a great job of sort of establishing the case – for repealing certificate of need, both with anecdotal stories and with statistics. Um, they were able to sort of equate what's going on in healthcare with certificate of need, which goes on in other industries like transportation, and were able to generate statistics that show that certificate of need laws do not serve any of the goals uh, that their supporters say that they do. So we've reached the end of the first segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Karuchek, your host for this week. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Karuchek, Dr. Mike Karuchek, your host uh, for this week. Thanks very much for your time to listen to our show broadcast on America's Web Radio every Thursday, uh, Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and also available on podcast uh, through the America's Web Radio website or on iTunes. So we encourage you to listen whatever is best for you on Thursday mornings or at your convenience via podcast. Uh, we're grateful for your support. Uh, we ask once again uh, 
for your financial support because this program cannot be put on uh, without financial support. The, the board members of Doctor Patient Care Foundation donate their time with no compensation whatsoever, uh, but there are costs above and beyond what we donate for free, uh, and we need uh, your financial support to keep this going. So if you like what you hear, if you like what you see uh, hearing about our meetings and looking at our materials online, uh, please do not hesitate to give generously. Uh, please go to www.d the numeral four pc d numeral four pc foundation.org uh, there is a web page there that you can uh, donate and we uh we thank you in advance uh, for your financial support uh we also and i don't know that i do this enough but uh to uh, give a shout out to david moxley at america's web radio for all the help that he gives us and all the support that he's given us over low these three years uh, it's actually as of, I think, June the 12th, I think, was our first broadcast, June the 12th of 2014. So uh, somewhere in here, depending on how you measure, we have passed our third uh, anniversary, uh, and uh, we're, we're delighted to still be here, and we're delighted to continue to keep working with David. David, I, uh, I apologize to you because I don't see you enough now because uh, I, I do the show from home and don't get up to the studio enough, but... Uh, uh, we'll try to change things here in the future with that and maybe get up there a little bit. So, uh, David, I shout out, thank you, uh, for, for everything that you do for us. So back to, uh, the, the topic at hand, which is the recently completed meeting at the Heritage Foundation made possible by a grant from the Cyril Freedom Trust. Uh, and and hosted by the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., uh, on Certificate of Need, uh, sort of a, a meeting of the minds, uh, a, a ability to fill in the facts so that everyone's knowledge base is complete, uh, and then, uh, with the help of our keynote speaker, Newt Gingrich, sort of come up with some strategies, a sort of a direction, uh, a way for us to take all of this uh, shared knowledge and enthusiasm and move it forward. So I'm going to uh, summarize some of the speakers that were there, and then I think we'll play uh, the speaker's uh, talk in its entirety or nearly its entirety, and I'll, I may interrupt uh, from time to time if, if I think of, uh, of a point that uh, I want to make. But let's start with, with just some summary of some of the initial lectures. The first lecture was given uh, by Professor Thomas Stratman, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center, Professor of Economics and Law at uh, uh, George Mason uh, uh, University. Um, and, and he did an excellent job of, of laying out the case for repeal of certificate of need laws, and 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 the case really had two parts to it. Uh, one is uh, is something that folks call sort of the the tip of the the spear, if you will, the tip of the arrow, if you will, which are those anecdotal stories um, that touch our hearts uh, and in some cases uh, a tug at our heartstrings uh, because of the sad things that have happened to patients as a result of not having the care facilities they need in the place they needed them when they needed them because certificate of need applications were turned down. So we'll talk about those first, and then we'll kind of move on to some of the uh, information that shows that at a more statistical level, at a more objective level, more than just anecdotes, uh, that certificate of need laws simply don't deliver on the promises they have. So um, he started the talk with two examples. The first example has to do with a procedure uh, that is called virtual colonoscopy. Now, 
what's that got to do with anything? Well, we know, uh, everyone pretty much knows, we'll fill it in if, if, if you're not familiar, um, that uh, when you get to age 50 that you need a screening colonoscopy and then you need one every 10 years after that and that uh, unless you have other risk factors going on. Uh, but but once colon is generally examined uh, with an endoscope, where the uh, the examining physician is is looking either through an eyepiece or video, and the scope is actually you know put where you're trying to look, um, that's an expensive procedure. Um, it's a cumbersome procedure, obviously. It's an uncomfortable procedure, obviously. Uh, requires sedation and so forth. Uh, virtual colonoscopy gets rid of all that and basically says we're going to do a CAT scan of your colon with some contrast material in place. Um, and the imaging resolution with currently available technology is so good that you can create an image of the inside of the colon without actually sticking a scope in there to look. That the CAT scan can scan the inner surface of the colon and then with computer imaging technology can actually rearrange that image such that you're inside the colon looking at the image. It's kind of like a flight simulator, if you will, where it looks like you're flying an airplane even though you're not. Uh, and so you can actually fly through the colon, so to speak, and examine the surface, the inner surface of the colon, looking for polyps and tumors and that sort of thing without actually having to sedate a patient and place a long, flexible instrument in an uncomfortable spot. Um, so in addition to an improved patient experience, it's also been documented to be more cost-effective as a screen. And there was, I believe, in the state of Virginia, uh, there was a physician named uh, Mark Baumel who was trying to open some imaging centers in Virginia to bring virtual colonoscopy to Virginia. Uh, already, ha- the, the technique is already in use in Delaware, and I think has been demonstrated to be cheaper and safer and more convenient. Uh, definitely safer because you don't have the risk of a perforation of the colon because you're not sticking an instrument in there. Well, it turns out that the state of Virginia denied Dr. Baumel's re- request for a certificate of need to open imaging centers to do this. And so this technology has been denied to the good people of Virginia. Uh, ironic, right? Because right next to Virginia and Washington, D.C., President Obama himself, uh, when it was his turn for a screening colonoscopy, chose the virtual colonoscopy technique over actually having a scope placed. Uh, so you look at something like this and you say, well, that's too bad. You know, we're subjecting people to risk unnecessarily, to additional cost unnecessarily. Uh, but then uh, Professor Stratman brought up a far more heart-wrenching, heart-breaking example, uh, and this was also in the state of Virginia, uh, and this was uh, a, a medical center called the Lewis Gale Medical Center in Salem, Virginia, uh, which I think is near Roanoke, and uh, in 2010, Lewis Gale Medical Center applied to the state of Virginia for a certificate of need for a neonatal ICU saying that, you know, we're in a location where the number of births has gone up significantly. Uh, we clearly have a need to do this hospital. The doctors were behind it. The administrators were behind it. The public was behind it. I think something like 96 people showed up to the CON meeting. And yet, because of a written testimony from a single physician, one Dr. Alice Ackerman, 
professor of pediatrics at Virginia Tech's medical school, which happens to be affiliated with Lewis Gale, Lewis Gale Medical Center's main competitor, Carillon Medical Center, uh, submitted a testimony that said, no, we don't need enough. We don't need another neonatal ICU. We have enough neonatal ICU beds. And because of the testimony of one so-called expert, the will of an entire hospital, groups of administrators, doctors, and a large amount of the public was ignored, and the certificate of need was denied. So, two years later, I want to say two years, let me double check the article. Yes, I think uh, two years later, in February of 2012, uh, a patient who has not been named publicly, um, 24 weeks pregnant, shows up at Lewis Gale Medical Center in, in desperate need of life-saving care for both mother and baby. Had something called a placental abruption. That's where the placenta separates from the uterus. Uh, not only is the baby in, a, in immediate danger uh, because now the, the baby's oxygen and food supply is, is threatened, um, but the mother is in danger because the, the baby can't be delivered uh, and there may be a large amount of bleeding that becomes life-threatening. So you have this major problem where the mom needs serious perinatal care, the child needs a neonatal ICU. Well, uh, they tried to get the neonatal ambulance teed up to take the child to Carolyn Medical Center, uh, but the ambulance was on the other side of town. So to make a long story short, they were able to save the mother. They were not able to save the child. Why? Because of a denied certificate of need application from two years earlier. Incredibly, incredibly, a couple of years after that, well, maybe later that same year in 2012, armed with this sad story, uh, Lewis Gale Medical Center reapplies for a certificate of need, saying, look what happened with a large number of patients who had been through similar experiences testifying at this hearing, but the same written testimony from the same medical expert was enough on behalf of Caroline Medical Center, the competition, was enough to, once again, incredibly, the state of Virginia denies the certificate of need application. So even after tragedy has occurred, the political machine, the monopoly that CON laws allow large hospitals to exert over medical communities was so strong that even after a heartbreaking, well-publicized story like this, the certificate of need incredibly was still denied. So we have two kinds of anecdotal stories here that, that, that build the case at a, at a, at a, at a uh, appealing to your heart. That certificate of need is a terrible thing that not only raises costs but costs lives and needs to be repealed. Okay, so anecdotal stories are good. Uh, again, the, the tip of the arrow, the thing that grabs your attention, but it's not enough by itself. 
you need to have some statistics you need to have you need to look at what the supporters of CON say is good about it and be able to refute those claims so uh, you know professor stratman did a great job and i don't have time to go into all of his statistics hopefully we'll be able to uh, you know either i or dr howell have him as a guest or we'll present the data ourselves and go into a little more detail uh, in some future shows um, but the bottom line is he presented some great statistics to show that uh, that all of the claims that CON supporters make are sort of unsubstantiated by the data. In fact, in some cases, the data actually conflict with what they're trying to say. So what do the, the CON supporters say? Well, they say that uh, that we need to regulate how many healthcare facilities there are of any given type um, so that costs are controlled, somehow thinking that the more facilities there are, the higher the cost per procedure will be which makes no sense, um, that somehow limiting the number of facilities ensures access to care, especially ensures rural access to care. Uh, you know what? I'm 10 seconds over. We're going to have to cut off right here, and I'll sort of pick up where I left off. I do this to guests all the time, so it's poetic justice. Anyhow, uh, we'll go to the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak hosting this week. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak hosting this week. Thanks for sticking around. A really great show this week talking about a really fantastic meeting uh, put on by the Doctor for Patient Care Foundation, hosted by the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., and supported by a grant from the Cyril Freedom Trust. And so we certainly give our thanks and gratitude to Heritage and Cyril for supporting the meeting. Also our thanks to former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, for being our keynote speaker and really bringing all of this message together uh, into something that can be carried forward into something that's truly effective. So anyhow, I interrupted myself mid-sentence to get between segment two and segment three. So we were talking about uh, Dr. Thomas Stratman's excellent presentation on certificate of need, establishing the case, both with anecdotal stories, which we talked about, and some statistics uh, that we were about to get into, uh, sort of at the fifty thousand foot level. Uh, what do what do supporters of CON 
say about why certificate of need laws are good? Well, they say a few things. One is that um, we need to control costs by controlling the number of healthcare facilities that are available. Uh, number two, they say that we need to use certificate of need laws to ensure rural access to care, um, because if if facilities, if extra facilities are opened in rural areas, then the single hospital, often the single biggest employer in a small town, will be forced to close. And if they're forced to close, then folks will be unemployed. There won't be any care, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They say that certificate of need laws are required to uh, have access to charity care, to indigent care, since with every certificate of need that is issued, there is also issued, and we know this from our own surgery center uh, in Georgia, there is issued a requirement that every year you need to provide a certain percentage of your care needs to be to indigent care, charity care. So do certificate of need laws improve or increase the amount of charity care that's given? It turns out they don't. And Mercatus and Dr. Stratman have excellent statistics to show that. And in fact, they have statistics. And again, we don't have time to go into those uh, this week. Hopefully in, in future uh, radio shows uh, here in the near future, we'll maybe break down those numbers for you. But uh, the bottom line is cost of care goes up with certificate of need. Makes sense. I mean, you're restricting supply. Demand is relatively inelastic for much of health care. And so costs have to go up. Uh, quality of care, and this is very interesting because they make an argument which intuitively you think, well, if we concentrate the patient volume in a smaller number of centers, people will be better at what they do because of higher volume. Uh, it turns out that doesn't work either, that, that care is definitely not better. And some of the Mercatus data shows that for things like uh, congestive heart failure and some other things, the quality of care is actually worse, that mortality may be higher in states with certificate of need. And why would this be? Well, it kind of makes sense if you think about it backwards once you know the results, um, which is that if these folks aren't competing with anybody, again, they're they're not pushed to be as good as they can be because they know the patient that comes in tomorrow has to come through their door because they have no other choice because certificate of need keeps competitors from opening facilities that could do a better job. Charity care. Right? Charity care is built into every certificate of need. You'd think intuitively, well, gosh, that's you know that that should make sense that there's more care, charity care. Does it? Well, it turns out Mercatus statistics say no. Charity care is not improved by certificate of need laws, and that states without CON laws do just as much charity charity care as states with CON laws. So all of the claims that are made by folks who support certificate of need laws are refuted by Mercatus data. So at the end of Stratman's talk, everyone was pretty much on the same page and armed with information to go and refute the claims of folks who support certificate of need, both with anecdotal stories, the tip of the arrow, and the rest of the arrow comes with statistics and data. Um, Before we go on to the speaker's talk, a couple of other folks that I want to highlight. One was a, a a talk by one uh, Sal Nuzo from the uh, Center for Economic Prosperity at the James Madison Institute. Uh, And he gave a talk about some of the effects of certificate of need in Florida. And of course, Florida has a rapidly expanding aging population. In spite of that, it turns out that because of certificate of need laws, no new nursing home uh, facilities have been built in Florida for 40 years, since the 70s. So not only is there a shortage, but the facilities that are there are are 40 years old. 
uh, and they're 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 badly in need of replacement, and yet because of certificate of need, nothing good happens. Um, another great speaker we had was Senator Pat Colbeck from Michigan, uh, and and he gave a talk about what's going on in his home state, uh, and that uh, rising healthcare costs in his state are also. Uh, directly connected, among other things, to certificate of need. Um, we had a, a long list of really good speakers doing really good stuff. Um, and, and, and my problem in coming up with a show today wasn't to get enough material, but to somehow filter through all the material there was to be had and come up with something meaningful for you in an hour. Um, best I can do is to summarize some things, and then I, I think it's worth it uh, for us to listen to the speaker's talk almost in its entirety. Um, I'm going to get ready to tee that up here in just a second, and uh, I, I may stop and start the playback uh, to make certain points that occurred to me or some stuff that may have come up when dis- in discussion uh, sort of offline. But uh, uh, here we go. Well, let me first of all thank all of you for taking time out of your busy lives to come here and try to affect public policy and try to help America work its way towards a better health system. Um, let me say, as part of my background, when I, I was a history teacher. My dad was a career soldier in the infantry, and uh, I spent uh, a, a long period uh, trying to figure out how the system works. I ran for Congress in 74 in the middle of Watergate, and I lost. I came back and ran in 76 with Jimmy Carter at the head of the Democratic ticket in Georgia, and I lost. And I finally won in 78. But I began, as early as 74, I began dealing with health as an issue because you couldn't run for office. And between doctors, hospitals, pharmacists, and patients and insurance agents, and you name it, if you're going to be in politics sooner or later, you're going to talk about health care. And it turned out we were just chatting about this. I actually opposed Certificate of Need in 74, so I have a long tradition of <laughs> – and, and mine was, frankly, just, just theoretical, that I think the idea of having bureaucracies set up decision-making almost guarantees politics and almost guarantees that the entrenched interests will always protect themselves. Uh, along that line, I wrote a book a couple years ago called Breakout, and the subtitle was uh, Pioneers of the Future and Prison Guards of the Past – uh, and I made the case basically that if the uh, stagecoach industry had had the right lobbyist, you wouldn't have railroads yet uh, because they would have blocked railroads as unfair competition. So uh, a lot of this, what we are going through, is normal. We've had, I think, uh, two major challenges uh, in how we've dealt with health now for the last 30 or 40 years. The one is that the way Washington defines the problem is exactly wrong. Uh, the problem is not insurance. I mean, first of all, uh, as a thought process, and we, we may do some polls in this in the near future, I'd be very curious if you said to the average American, if we guaranteed 100% access to care, do you care about insurance? And remember, for example, you have 8,000 federal community health clinics, which are never counted in. Uh, you have some places, I know one I visited in South Carolina, we have doctors who give free medicine. And you have all sorts of ways of solving problems. And I really got turned on to this because I, I was in a debate. Uh, Rick Perry and I were on one side and two liberal Democrats on the other side. And Perry said, and they, were, they were after Perry for not expanding Medicaid. And he said, well, we had taken a totally different decision. We decided that insuring you wasn't as important as caring for you. And so as long as we could guarantee access to care, we didn't care whether or not you had insurance. And the, the, they didn't know what to say because they knew they couldn't be against it. They couldn't be anti-care. So they were, I mean, they literally were just kind of like, wow. One of them said to me later, 
that was really like watching a hard, fast pitch knocked out of the park. She said, she said I had no idea what to do at that point. Uh, so, that, so part of it is the misdefinition of what the problem is. Uh, the second problem, which, which I want to suggest you've got to think about in a self-critical way about yourselves also, all of health care is about greed. Nobody wants to talk about that. I mean, why do the, why do the pharmaceutical companies love the way things are going? Because they make lots of money. You know, why do hospitals protect themselves? Because they make money. Why are the insurance companies like they are? Because they make money. Uh, the biggest losers have been doctors who have not been able to stop the centralization of power. Uh, and so between government bureaucracy, insurance bureaucracy, and hospital bureaucracy, doctors have probably had the hardest time of any group. But it all goes back to the same pattern. That, that, that So when you go in with an interesting idea, we, we had this happen last year. Um, there, because I'm, I'm fascinated with the extraordinary rapid advance of science and technology and have been my whole life. And uh, there's a company which, whose name I'll forget, so I'm not going to try to say it. But there's a company which invented a self-administered eye exam. Uh, and their pitch was, because the, the American Optometry Association says you should get an eye exam every other year, but if you have contacts, you have to go in every year in order to get the contact renewed, which in essence uses the contacts as an excuse to create an unnecessary additional visit. So these guys had invented a machine that for you know you could basically do on your own computer at home, uh, and, and you didn't have to go in. And so you save money, you save time. And, of course, in Georgia and virtually every state, the local association promptly went to the lobby to the legislature to outlaw it because it was going to cut into their revenue. It had nothing to do with safety. It had nothing to do with health care. It had to do with money. And so part of what we need is an honest conversation in America about money uh, because if you follow the money, you begin to understand a lot of what's wrong with the system. Uh, I, I, I once was advising a hospital, I mean a, an insurance company, which tried to go into Pittsburgh. And they went to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and they said, you know, you only have three major insurance companies. You really need another insurance company. And the guy said, no, we don't. We have a perfect relation with the three insurance companies, and we have no interest in a fourth company coming in, and we will not negotiate with you because you don't fit our model. Yeah, the same thing happened with, with, with uh, one of the most famous and, and on the left one of, one of the most loved institutions, uh, which is the uh, hospital system in California, and my mind has gone blank for half a second. Huh? Yeah, Kaiser Permanente. Uh, Kaiser Permanente is a fabulous system, which refuses to take Medi-Cal. You know, I mean, why do they? Why do they have the margins they have? Well, because they don't take care of any poor people, and they don't want to take care of poor people, and they are enormously powerful in lobbying, so they ain't going to take care of poor people now. As an example of all this, I, we once said as a member of our Center for Health Transformation, <clears throat> the largest um, not-for-profit chain in Northern California. And I was visiting Kaiser because I was intrigued. So there's some things Kaiser does really, really well. Uh, their use of electronic medical records. I mean, they, 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 they produced various problems with, with medicines earlier than anybody else because they have such quantitative databases. Uh, and they can see when certain things aren't working. So I, I was studying Kaiser, and I was talking to these guys. I'm going to cut that off right there. We're close to the end of the segment, and I want to get this part about EMR that he says all in one piece at the beginning of the fourth segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We are giving you Newt Gingrich's uh, keynote speech at our meeting on Certificate of Need. Uh, stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchek, your host this week. Thanks very much for listening all the way through to segment four. Really good stuff we have here. Excerpts from uh, speakers at our Certificate of Need meeting at the Heritage Foundation, sponsored by the Cyril Freedom Trust uh, and keynoted by Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, so we're going to get right back into that talk, and I'm, I may try and back this up a second or two. You may hear a little bit of repeat here, but he's talking about – uh, Kaiser's electronic medical record system. So let's see if I can't back that up just enough and, uh, and get that, uh, back up to, um, to let you hear this whole thing on EMR with Kaiser. Here we go. Earlier than anybody else, cause they have such quantitative databases, uh, and they can see when certain things aren't working. So I, I was studying Kaiser and I was talking to these guys, uh, Sutter Health, and they were both getting IT systems. And they were both getting the IT system from Epic. And they were consciously designed not to communicate with each other. That was part of the contract. And I said, what are you doing? They said, we don't want the doctors to have an ability to transfer. If we had a common IT system, then they could It would be as though your Visa card only worked at your bank. And any other bank you went to around the world, it wouldn't work because they wanted to keep you captive. And it's that kind of stuff. So you have to. Uh, and the reason I'm telling you this is, we don't today have the right language to explain what's going on, and so we get caught in morally sounding. You know, the reason you need a certificate of need is because otherwise you're going to have all of these uh, cheap operations come in that aren't going to be really doing the whole thing, and they're going to take advantage, and they're only going to do the high the high value things. They're not going to take on the low-value things. And so here we'll be left as this poor hospital, and we have 6,000 employees, and we're going to crush you if you vote against us. <laughs> That's what passes for dialogue in American health care today. Does, that make, does this make sense to all of you? Now, <clears throat> let me impose on you for a couple of minutes, because uh, I don't often get chance to have this many really smart medical people in one room. One of the challenges, I think, particularly if you are in relatively independent or small group practice, that you have to think about and you have to help us think about is how do we design 
the flow of information to enable people at a relative investment to stay current. Because we're going to have, I mean, the difference right now between the best people in certain specialties and the 10th best person is night and day because the best person is now doing something which will become standard in eight or 10 years. But it's, it's so far different than what people learn in medical school. And then this is going to accelerate, I think. This is going to become a huge uh, part of this pattern. And I think part of the centrality of being a doctor is going to be relating to how do I continue to evolve? And it'll be different than the traditional continuing education stuff. It may mean that we really develop systems where you only pull it forward when you need it. So instead of trying to figure out how do I scan everything to remain sort of relevant, you say when a patient comes in who has a particular need, I've got to be able to go through an entire learning package uh, in a relatively short amount of time to know what literally is this week's current information, which may have changed dramatically from three months ago. And you're going to see that scale. I think I'll close this with one example. I'm going to talk about politics. Uh, I went out a couple, a couple years back and talked to the National Neuroscience uh, Conference, which at that time was 37,000 people. It started a decade earlier with 800. And there are just that many people in that many different places doing work. I mean, it's, it is astonishing the wave that is coming at us. And we don't have very good systems for integrating that information and getting people to best of class, or more importantly, getting best of class to every doctor, which is what we want. So that's something for you all to think about is, is what's the right kind of systems to enable people to pull forward knowledge so, they get, so they're getting the most recent, most, most effective. They're doing it in a way which they can afford to do in terms of time. Uh, because what you can't do is have people have to go back and, and retake medical school every six years. Although the amount of change may literally be comparable to being uh, and, uh, having a new medical school curriculum. That is, if medical schools change, which they don't. That's the other great. That's another great example. Is that medical schools, like all internally, uh, all internally defined institutions, like to do what they've always done, which is what they did back when their grandfather was there. They don't actually understand why you want them to change. Uh, which is a major problem in how we generate medicine doctors in this country. Um, now, the politics of all this. There are, I think there are three components you got to be aware of as you go down the road. The first is the one I mentioned about the whole system. That is, if, if the fight you're actually in is an interest group fight, then you got to figure out how to bring to bear enough resources to defeat the interest group. Because it's, it's not a fight. You know, when, when, you, when, you, when you end up in a fight, for example, with a pharmaceutical company, um, they understand what they, the outcome they want. They want to maximize their income. And they, and they can generate 23 good arguments for it. But the underlying story is they want to maximize their income. And so you've got to figure out in that kind of a fight, can you arouse enough, a, enough allies to beat them? Because you're not going to get them to voluntarily change. Um, and you see, by the way, the beginning of the break in the ice there, which is these these idiots who buy companies as entrepreneurs and, and raise the price 800 percent on on a 40 year old drug. I mean, that stuff is going to is going to keep the, the pharmaceuticals on permanent defense, uh, and and they don't they don't have an answer for it. So you, every time you start down one of these, like when you get into a CON fight, what you really want to figure out is what's the balance of power. And then how do I aggregate enough power to beat these guys? Because in the end, it's going to come down to power. And, and uh, their capacity in the state legislature to lobby or their capacity in the Congress to lobby. 
And that's a very key part of this. And unfortunately, this is a city, and I think every state capital is the same way, where I tell people the old order has lobbyists and the new order has press releases. <laughs> and that's a major challenge to how, how, you, how you win that kind of fight. The second thing to understand is every elected official, with very few exceptions, is overwhelmed. I mean, th think about waking up in the morning and hearing that congressmen have been shot at baseball practice. Well, guess what that day is going to be about? Or you wake up and you discover this morning Trump went down and, and tightened up on Cuba. Or you, you know, or you find out that Mueller's done X, or you find out that the Russians have done Y. The range of things, whether you're a state legislator or you're a congressman, the range of things you have to know a little bit about is unbelievable. And so you don't have time to genuinely get educated. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of why this is important. And, and, and if you take these to heart, you will become dramatically more effective in, in, in affecting change. The first is, anytime you go to see somebody who has power, ask yourself the question, what if they say yes when you walk in the room? Yeah, you walk in, you're about to give them your pitch, they say yes. What did they say yes to? What people tend to do is they tend to go in and explain their problem. So you want to go in and say, this is why CONs aren't really very good, and this is this, and this is that. And they'll give you 15 minutes, and they're fairly smart, and they'll ask two or three reasonable questions. And you'll think, wow, we had a great conversation. You'll get up to leave. You'll feel like now they're going to think about your problem. And you won't notice that there's another group walking in as you're walking out. And a serious senior member can easily have 20 meetings in a day. Now, what are the odds he remembers meeting three? And says, boy, that's the one I want to think about after dinner tonight. Furthermore, even if he thought about it, if you haven't come to a conclusion, why do you think he's going to come or she is going to come to a conclusion? So you're far better off to think through, if they understood what I understood, what is it they would do? Because you want to think of them as action figures, not in these aren't college professors, these aren't intellectuals, these aren't teachers. They're people who vote yes or no. And you want to figure out what is it you want them to say yes to. Or what is it you want them to say no to? The fourth thing that you have to think about is language. One of the reasons Trump won is he speaks at a fourth grade level. Now, he doesn't speak at a fourth grade level because he's stupid. He speaks at a fourth grade level because he was not in real estate on the finance side. He was in real estate on the construction side. And if you're going to go down to the construction site and talk to people, you want to talk to them in a language they understand, and you want to have them open up and talk to you because they think that you and they are similar. Okay. Um, your job, the challenge you face is, and this is true of almost every professional group, you know so much that you would like to share with them what you know. They don't want to know what you know. 
<laughs> Furthermore, they know that if they knew it, they couldn't use it because they don't have all the rest of the knowledge you have that surrounds it. So part of your job, and we're talking about this in terms of, for example, cost. I mean, if we could actually put together, for example, the, the, uh, the example of uh, the, the hospital emergency room 20,000 versus the doctor delivered 300, that begins to be, you know, which would you rather pay? Uh, you have a problem with Medicaid. This package is impossible. This package lets you take 40% out of Medicaid. Which future do you want? And here are the three things you have to do. But you have to be in a position where you can explain in simple, understandable language what the outcome is that you are offering and what the action is which will get you the outcome. That's, that's the heart of how to do this effectively. And the reason you want to do it in part is because that's what you want to say on radio and television. That's what you want to say on Facebook. That's what you say on Twitter. And that's what you want to say when you write an op-ed. So you have a common language that grows that enables people to say, okay, which do I like? Do I like the $300 price or the $20,000 price? And then you let the hospital executive come in and explain why the $20,000 price is a morally superior price because it is an investment in the virtues of a huge, giant bureaucracy. <laughs> and your answer is fine. I mean, if you love paying $20,000 for a $300 product, go, that's fine. Just don't kid yourself. You know, you've chosen to pay 68 times more than, it, than it's worth. This is called being a stupid shopper. And if the politicians of our state want to be stupid shoppers, maybe we should elect some politicians who are smart shoppers. Okay, so we're running out of time here at the, at the top of the hour. But you get the idea, uh, and this is kind of what I was saying at the top of the hour or, or at some point about how useful his comments were about us breaking through sort of the glass ceiling and getting to the next level. This advice that he was giving was tremendous. And I hope we have access to him, to him again in the future so that we can really bring this forward into something that, that becomes actionable items and, and some success. So we're out of time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.